Professor Michael O. Johnston is an assistant professor of sociology from William Penn University in the USA. Some of his areas of specialization include criminology, social problems, qualitative methods, juvenile delinquency, and marriage. In this episode, we'll be speaking about his publication on the Tulip Queen and her Royal Court, which is a festival and beauty pageant that takes place on a seasonal basis in Iowa in the USA. and welcome to the podcast it's a pleasure to have you with us today so, thank you for inviting me so like first and foremost i'd just like to know a little bit about yourself your background and what it is about you know sociology as a general field of study that you find interesting yes again i'm michael johnston i am an assistant professor of sociology at william penn university in oskaloosa iowa and uh, I, I started in sociology as an undergraduate, um, as, uh, as you did as well. And uh, I, I majored in sociology and psychology at Buena Vista University. And from there, I went on to my master's degree. I did not major in sociology. I majored in public administration. Uh, and a large influence on that was my chair um, of, the, of the department and my advisor, uh, John Wagner. And he said, I, I, I did public administration and it's more general than sociology, but uh, you know, sociology is part of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I find that to be um, for the most part true. I went on and earned my master's in public administration from Iowa State University uh, and then continued on, earned my PhD from Walden University while I was teaching sociology at William Penn University. And uh, the PhD is in public administration with the focus on nonprofit management and leadership. And uh, from there, I continued on and earned additional credit hours in sociology. I, I just sort of fell in love with it while teaching it and uh, reading the books and, and just diving deep into uh, sociology. But, you know, with sociology as being an um, extremely uh, broad area of study, ranging from gender to race and ethnicity to uh, festivals. And and that's my area of study is festivals. Um, Festivals take me a variety of directions depending on um, what what I observe at these festivals, ranging from gender to race and ethnicity to uh, class and status. And that's what we'll be talking a bit about today, class and status at the intersections of class status and uh, gender. Um, paper that we're talking about today um, is uh, on Tulip Queen and her royal court. And it has to do with a small town festival called Tulip Time. It's uh, in Iowa and, and it occurs every year. Well, almost every year. It did not occur in 2020 as a result of COVID-19, they suspended it for a year and they just had it again this year in May, 2021. Uh, But what I focused on with this festival particularly is the Tulip Queen and her royal court. It is is a queen pageant that is designed around a special festival called Tulip Time. 
yeah, you know, I think that's quite interesting because I haven't really, you know, heard of, of this concept before. So is it one which is unique to the US and to Iowa specifically, or is it one which is, is a festival that is, you know, like celebrated in, in like different forms around the world? Can you just you know, like tell us a little bit about like the background and, and like the context so we get like a better understanding of, of what the <laughs> festival is about? Yeah, so Tulip Time Festival is a specialty festival that stands out from the mundane and the everyday. And festivals can range from being cultural festivals to music festivals to sport festivals. Uh, this one in particular is a cultural uh, festival that is focused around the heritage of how Pella, Iowa was founded. It was founded by um, settlers of Dutch heritage and um, they named our town Pella. And uh, not long after that is when the uh, Tulip Time Festival occurred. And it is focused around the Dutch heritage. The girls are promoting Tulip Time Festival and they are wearing uh, in the festival and uh, throughout the and throughout the process of becoming nominated for and becoming um, queen and part of the, or part of the royal court, and they are wearing formal Dutch regal. Right, right. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what the scope of your study is about, and you know, like what exactly you know it is about the festival that you in study in terms of like sociology and looking at it from like an analytical sort of lens. Yeah, so what I did in, in the study is I used content from media interviews. They were published in the local Tulip Time edition of the Town Crier. And these interviews were uh, conducted with Tulip, the Tulip Queen and the Royal Attendant. And what they were, what they were meant for is to give the residents of the community and other people who subscribe to the Town Crier a sneak peek background view of the Tulip Queen and, and the Royal Attendants, who they are, who their family is, where they came from, uh, any sports that they participate in or any extracurricular activities, and just to get to know them a little bit better. I used it for study to learn if there's anything that is that really stands out and that is similar among all of the different uh, uh, girls who are who were part of Tulip Time Festival over a 10-year period from 2010 to 2019. And uh, what I did is I used content analysis to study how these girls self-represented and any discourses that these girls shared about themselves with the interviewer. I used purposive data. It was already put out to me and available. I didn't have to go out and get a random sample or something like that. It was qualitative study. And the purpose that I had in mind is to learn more about the Tulip, uh, the Tulip Time Festival and the girls who are part of this pageant. I really had no objective in mind other than to understand and learn more about it. I couldn't have predicted the trajectory. I didn't even come into it with a hypothesis. I was just curious. I knew a little bit about Tulip Pageant. I knew a little bit about the Tulip Pageant here in town, and I knew a little bit about Queen Pageants in general from the literature review that I conducted, but I couldn't predict where this was going to take me, and um, and it was a, it was an enjoyable ride, and it was an enjoyable an enjoyable opportunity to get to know more about this Tulip Time Pageant. Absolutely, yeah, it's a 
it's interesting definitely because when you look at the concept of of a royalty right i think it's it's one which um you know i'm expecting is not very common today you know because like when we think of you know kings and queens and princesses it's usually something that is rooted you know in like ancient history so in that sense i think in like the paper as well you know like you speak a little bit about the idea of you know of like privilege as well so can you maybe you know like elaborate a little bit on on that as a core theme yeah so privilege is a is a very subtle thing privilege is a, is a trait a skill, a habit that somebody has um, internalized through a process of embodiment. And it, uh, um, I'll just use habitus as a, as a concept uh, by Pierre Bourdieu. And one of the things that uh, he says about habitus is it becomes habit when it becomes a, a trait that one enacts without even being knowledgeable of enacting it. So these privileges that the girls have as being tulip queens or on or royal attendants on the court are traits that they are unaware of. They and they are likely unaware of even their parents and grandparents and several generations prior. It is something that is learned through everyday social interaction in which um, one learns how to enact habitus in the fields that they are part of. And, and these privileges are things like the type of jobs that their parents have or uh, the extracurricular activities that these girls are able to participate in or the positions that they're able to take on as starters in the different extracurricular activities they are participating in. It also includes tutors, it includes music, it includes religious um, religious activities that they participate in. They're privileges that just are taken for granted and are part of the everyday that one is often unaware of. Certainly, right. Yeah, you know, I think um, being a pretty new concept, right, I think I just want to understand the life of a tulip queen itself. Um, how do you think it differs from that of another person her age who like, goes to school and everything? So I think that it is a, um, the Tulip Queen and, and her royal attendants are, stand above and outside of it because Tulip Queen is not something that is um, who they are every day of the year. It is, a, uh, it is a ceremonial activity that is part of Tulip Time Festival. It is something that is temporal. They become Tulip Queen they certainly are part of the next year's festivities and they get to sit on a special uh, float for past tulip time queens and uh, carry out certain rituals. And it also comes with privileges, uh, privilege when they get to write it on their, their college application to say that this is an activity that I participated in. It also gives them television time because they do interviews with the local news stations. They also get, um, time in front of people's eyes through the newspaper interviews that they do. And those get to be set aside and become part of their history um, as they grow older and pass on knowledge to their children. So it is a privilege because it stands out and there's not uh, over a 10 year period, there were 50 girls who were either uh, tulip queens or part of the Royal court. 
there are more than 50 girls, there are more than 50 seniors, there are more than 50 seniors and juniors in Pella, Iowa, but there are only 50 who get this title that they get to carry with them throughout the uh, throughout the years. Is it different than any other queen pageant? I don't think so. Uh, is it um, is it different how it's presented? Well, yeah, it's part of a festival and it's sort of uh, heritage based and it's more than just about beauty and meeting certain qualifications in order to become part of the pageant. It's more about where, where the person is from and it's more about their good reputation in the community and what they've done for the community than it is about being pretty. Right, right. Yeah, you know, like this sort of reminds me, you know, in a way of a lot of other, you know, like modeling contests and stuff you see, right? Like, you know, I, I used to follow America's Next Top Model quite a bit. I don't know if it, you know, if it's like similar or like different in that sense. But, you know, I think quite a bit of work has been done, you know, like in, um, you know, in like the social sciences itself, you know, like modeling and, you know, like, you know, and like gender in that sense, right? So I think I'd like to know a little bit more about what past literature and research has said on the topic of, you know, like pageantry and, you know, how it like overlaps with like the topic that you looked at as well with that little thing. Yeah, so one of the things that I focused on is about, uh, is embodiment and uh, performance of gender, uh, particularly um, the, the paper focused on habitus and Purdue and in my literature review, but also Weston Zimmerman and doing gender. Is this what you are? So um, doing gender is a performance. It's not one of the things that uh, that has been said about doing gender, and it was uh, Simone de Beauvoir in the second sex that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Weston Zimmerman, I think, had a similar. Uh, had a similar sentiment and that it is something that is negotiated and and is performed through interactions and actions that one has, learning whether they are doing their gender right uh, through such things as negative and positive reinforcement when an act is either done right or wrong. Uh, for example, I tell my students, if I walked into class with high heels on one day this upcoming semester, what would you say? Would you giggle? Would you laugh? Would you smile and say um, you're wearing them well? However you would respond would be based on how you've been socialized to believe whether males are supposed to wear high heels or not. But it wasn't that long ago that kings were wearing high heels to show their power, their status, right? But today, high heels are worn for the most part, by females with certain social circles and certain uh, events where men are, uh, where it would be acceptable, viewed acceptable for males to wear high heels, like drag performances is one example I can think of, mm -hmm. um, or these races that males have where they're supposed to wear high heels and race from one part to the, uh, to another area. But gender is a performance. Gender is not something that we are born into. That would be sex, which is often sometimes manipulated and misused because sex and gender are, are separate concepts. Yeah, so I think, you know, looking at theory itself, how do you think gender is performed in, in the context of, of the beauty page? And are there any specific traits or expectations that, that contestants are supposed to uphold that are performed, you know, that 
are perhaps a performance of gender in, in any ways. Yes, so gender is made up of a variety of different symbols that carry significance through the creation of meaning that occurs through social interaction. As a beauty pageant, these girls are expected to show up uh, when doing their performances in specific types of clothing, wearing their hair in specific ways. You will see that these girls have their hair done and they're wearing makeup when they are in public, when they're performing in public. These performances stand out and above everyday normal behavior, because if you were to see these girls outside of this performance, they probably, they are not wearing Dutch costume. They are not wearing their hair up. And if you catch them behind stage, they might not even have makeup on. They are also talking in a trained way. They have a script that they have developed um, to use when interacting with when interacting in public for this, uh, for the Tulip Time Festival, uh, for the Tulip Queen pageant. Certainly, yeah. So you'd also mentioned that, you know, um, like a lot of these girls are, you know, they give interviews, they may even mention, you know, that they've taken part in the festival as a part of perhaps their college applications, right? So how do you think the media and such associated like bodies and the public in general use the tulip queen and how exactly has it been you know represented so the media i think their role is to reinforce proper behavior proper performances they produce and reproduce the social norms that are associated with tulip time festival they are commercializing it and um creating it they're commercializing it and creating tulip time festival as a business that they can profit from and rightfully so media is a is a business and in order for them to uh, continue forward they must be profitable and they must have an audience without that uh, without that uh, I don't think that they would continue to be in business mm -hmm. and they are also employees who are acting the media as a platform does not act without employees, without humans who are, who are creating the object of news through their interviews, through their talks. And I think that they also have a role, right? The role of, of producing news and uh, to produce an image of the news that, they, that, they, that these news anchors perform. Certainly, yes. Um, so I don't know if this fell within the scope of your research exactly, but I think I'm also a little curious to know about what exactly is, you know, the role of the family and the parents in particular when they encourage, you know, their daughters to, you know, apply for the pageant and how does that work out? Yes, so the way that these girls become members of the Royal Court or Tulip Time Queens is by being nominated. Uh, so the first round is nomination and then it goes to a voting round. And then the top 12, I believe it's the top 12, the top 12 um, girls who receive the most votes will then go to a performance where they are then voted on by a panel of local business people. The first two rounds require some level of popularity. It requires the girls to be known. Nominations, uh, they don't have to be that well known, but then when it comes to a voting round, these girls have to have some level of an audience, captive audience to get votes. 
So I think it is the social capital that parents have in the positions they serve that help these girls become better known in the community, whether it be their parents being police officers or doctors in the community or, um, or office men and women in the, uh, in the business world at one of our local businesses like Vermeer or Pelicorp. Certainly, right. You know, I think another very interesting thing that you mentioned, right, is that all of these girls who are competing, uh, you know, in in the Tulip Queen pageant, like all of them have, you know, parents from, you know, supposedly, you know, like well-off backgrounds, all of that, right? So I think in that sense, they do have a sense of economic capital in place. And, you know, being a Tulip Queen, they definitely have, you know, that level of, you know, of like social, you know, like capital as well, right? Um, so, you know, I think apart from, you know, being a status symbol and and in addition to, you know, being a status symbol, you know, like, like do you think it grants her any sort of, you know, of like benefits, you know, in, in like a circles and like the community and, you know, like what exact, you know, effects does it have on like her personal life as well? On their personal life, I think it uh, helps with popularity um, and particularly these girls are in high school. So being in high school, a, a really significant part of, you know, the four years in high school is developing friendship groups mm-hmm. and uh, having friendship groups where you where a person feels included. So having this benefit, I think, uh, um, could potentially help with developing networks of friends who um, who can become beneficial for that person throughout their whole life. And again, this is uh, and we're talking about privilege here. So I'm not pointing a finger at um, at any of these girls or their parents. It's rather subtle. They're just living their life. I think it's normal for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, take it for granted, getting up every day just like anybody else does. And uh, I don't find anything about my life awkward or unique or genuine. Uh, however, other people who don't experience the same life might find my life to be rather strange. Yeah. Uh, so to be completely transparent, my wife and I uh, adopted two beautiful children. Uh, throughout the whole adoption process, we um, heard from other people, oh, this is such wonderful stuff that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it must be difficult. Oh, I, I, you're providing these kids such a great life. I didn't think of that because I was in it. It was within arm's reach to me. I didn't find anything strange about what I was doing. I, take, I took it for granted and it was just uh, expected of me a duty per se, that uh, I carried out every day of my life of providing care to our two children. But to others, it was strange, just as, you know, to me as a researcher, looking from the outside in, I found it quite interesting, intriguing, curious to know the similarities of what it would be like to be a tulip queen or part of the royal court and to learn what their family life was like as well. Definitely. I think, you know, here context plays a very important role, right? Because, you know, when we just begin to look at, you know, like an individual and that person's life in isolation, you know, we often look at them and then we think, how can they have a life like that? But then, you know, like when you begin to, you know, really understand that, okay, you know, like life at that point, in that place, in that time, there were all of these other factors. And, you know, I think that's what makes sociology so interesting, right? Um, Yeah, so, you know, I think to sort of move on to my next question, I'd like to know a little bit about whether social media plays a role, whether these girls may be on Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter, and they have 
any you know like role models you know like per se or or um, yeah or like anything of of that sort and like who exactly you know like do they look up to you know like in their in their life regarding like the cubic queen specifically so that would be uh, outside of the scope in terms of the study that I did because I did not look at their social media accounts. Mm -hmm. um, however, what I noticed about these girls and where they learned about becoming tulip queens and becoming part of the royal court is directly at their at their family. Many of them had relatives who were tulip queens or were royal attendants, and as a result of that, they had cultural capital. Another uh, another sociology concept, which means what they understood how to navigate the field of tulip uh, tulip time page queen pageant. They knew what it took to become a queen as a result of having family members to turn to and uh, learn from. Mm -hmm. As as cultural capital is beneficial in any other area, just as much as it is in uh, the tulip queen pageant. Uh, right, I teach at William Penn University, a small liberal arts institution where we have many first generation students. First generation students often come into the university uh, without completely understanding um, how to do FAFSA or what courses to take at what time in their career or how many courses to take at any given time. So as an advisor, it's my role to help them out with that and teach them how to better navigate the university. And what do I tell the students? You're doing great things here. If you decide to have children one day or adopt or whatever, uh, or if you have nieces and nephews, you are going to be extremely beneficial to them because they will have somebody to turn to when and if they decide to go to college. Mm -hmm. These girls had somebody to turn to to learn how to be queens and royal attendants. There were very few of them that said they were the first generation tulip queen or royal attendant. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. I think you know a lot of um, the social norms and structures that we see today sort of boils down to networks, right? Because if you do have some, you know, in, like either in your family or in your community or in you know like your ethnicity or your race, if you know you do look at um, all of these things happening and you're a part of the structure, then I think you know it's it's inevitable, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, I think along those lines, um, I'd like to know a little bit more as to, you know, whether the contestants were from a certain ethnicity or race or community where this practice has been encouraged, uh, you know, if, if like you've done, you know, any um, like research on that. Many of these girls aspired to become, I think there were maybe only two girls who did not have aspirations of becoming Tulip Queen one day in their life. They didn't expect to become royal attendants because, uh, if a person is aspiring to get into a position, of course, they're hoping to become the queen. They aspire to become that. And uh, throughout their life, they did things like writing on uh, a float that is part of the Tulip Time Festival parade that's called Future Tulip, Time, uh, Future Tulip Queens. Um, they aspire to do that and uh, and the other interesting piece about this was uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, all but one of the girls were white, um, which is uh, something that if we were to look uh, back across Tulip, um, not just Tulip Queen pageant, but also Queen pageants, it tends to be white middle upper class background girls who have the necessary economic, social and cultural capital 
to get into queen pageants. Although that is not uh, that is not universally true as of today. We're starting to see more racially and ethnic diverse, as well as um, different levels of ability and uh, different sexual orientations and gender orientations. We're we're seeing varied representations of what it means to be a queen in a queen pageant or in a beauty pageant. But uh, so far for Tulip Queen pageant, there's only been one uh, person of race who has uh, received Tulip Queen uh, royalty or, or have been on the royal court. Uh, I would like to say that it's because our community is majority white. Um, although I don't think that's necessarily the right answer or the, um, and definitely not the only answer. I don't know that it's, I, I don't, I haven't explored that further to know what exactly it is. So I'm not going to make any hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, like, you know, when you look at, at like different types of competitions that, you know, um, young girls and boys face in their high school and college life, right? Like, you know, like the Bayesian being, you know, like one example, but, you know, like the, you know, like whether it's the race to go to college or, you know, like in, in sports, you know, um, I think there oftentimes is a sense of, you know, competitiveness that comes in, right? That creates, you know, like a sense of, you know, like hierarchy among students as well. So I just like, you know, the case in terms of study as well and like how exactly, you know, it panned out. Yeah, I think there is some competition that is associated with this. The girls tended to work well together, whether they're queens or royal attendants, because it was a um, it was a prestigious position, regardless of where they ended up on the court. There was privilege that came with their position. I would say that this uh, race for for such prestigious positions is reinforced through media, through television shows that we watch as young kids my daughter who is seven who still likes to dress up in princess outfits why disney or anything else that she might watch on tv reinforces the image of young girls being princesses and then traditions that exist throughout the whole life time reinforces that same image if nothing else it goes from being a princess to finding a prince and dressing up for a wedding where makeup is done to the is done to a t the hair is perfected and the dress is long and she eventually gets to, he eventually gets to kiss the bride. She eventually gets to kiss the groom. Mm-hmm. Those normative values are reinforced through media. Yeah. Something else that's interesting if you look at, you know, like the pageant in particular, right? You've got these girls who are in high school, they are, you know, studying and, and all of that, right? And I think on that, like on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm wondering that, you know, if you look at um, at the beauty pageant from a point of view of the kind of gender norms that it reinforces, right? Um, have you noticed at all that, you know, any of these girls may be, you know, like thinking about, you know, like these norms or they may be, you know, a bit, you know, like critical of, of like all of these things or like do they just embody them and like embrace them as a part of like their identity as well? Well, it's socialized to them, uh, again, to go back to aspirations. They, they wanted to do this um, there were only two girls who said, no, really, we, ne- we, ne- we never thought we would end up doing this. But when the opportunity um, emerged, then we couldn't turn it down. So there was still some level of expectation that they knew they were dutiful of. So they took on the, they, they continued to ride with it and continued to pursue 
the tulip queen uh, position. So I think that they they do embody it. They make it as part of their life. It's part of their schedule. They are really busy during the whole process. Uh, I think that it is something that they take on and that they take personal because uh, to invest that much time and effort into becoming tulip queen uh, or to becoming a member of the royal court uh, would not would not be something that they could just uh, take without much seri- uh, without much seriousness. I think it's something that that they would have to um, invest time and embody and truly become part of the performance. Right, right, certainly. Yeah, you know, I think um, you also mentioned a little earlier as well, you know, that, um, you know, there are like certain parameters that they will be assessed on, right? So can you tell us a little bit about who is on the panel of judges and, you know, like what these criteria are on basis of which they are assessed? Yeah, so these girls are being judged on a variety of different facts. So to begin with, the panel is um, is made up of a group of business people. They're all residents of uh, Pella, and they are selected by the Chamber of Commerce and uh, the Tulip Time Committee. And they're being judged on their reputation. They're being judged on a performance that is associated with associated with who they are. So they get to be a little creative in their performance. They pick a theme, something that is related to what they do. It could be a sport that they participate in. It could be the arts, it could be music. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they get judged on, on the performance that they carry out. Again, it's made up of a, um, a queen and a royal attendant for a total of five people for a total of 10 years. So I had 50, uh, a total of 50 girls in the study who were part of the study. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And, you know, I think um, to sort of come to, you know, my final question, right? I think I'd like to know like a little bit as to how your own background or identity or experiences has influenced the course of your research in terms of either your access to resources, or, you know, your course of narration. And how exactly, you know, you like think that worked out, you know, like reflecting back on the, on the study and the field work and the research process. So one of the things that I try to do in my research is be as unobtrusive as possible. And unobtrusive methods basically means that I'm not intruding on the participants in the study. I didn't interview the girls. I, I didn't have any impact on how, uh, on how the Tulip Time Festival or the Tulip Queen pageant moved forward. I, I lurked in the backgrounds. I wasn't a participant observer or observer participant. I, I wasn't doing ethnography. Uh, at best, I was doing netnography, which is what searching the media and um, becoming deeply entrenched in the culture through information, through knowledge that was available to me from these newspapers. And uh, that gave me a very keen insight to what was happening here. I'm an outsider. I'm an implant to Pella, Iowa. I've been here for 11 years. I wasn't born here. My wife was born here and raised here. So I didn't grow up like fully madly in love with this thing called Tulip Time Festival or uh, even knowing it as a festival. My small town festival was Oktoberfest. It was about uh, beer and sauerkraut, kind of. 
But, uh, you know, Tulip Time Festival was strange to me, which I didn't have any bias in going into it. Uh, I truly wanted to learn more. And I think that that gave me a more pure lens to look through when I was studying Tulip Time Festival and the Tulip Queen pageant. It's interesting. So, you know, I think, um, you know, and, and being an outsider to this, right, is there anything that you found, you know, like particularly interesting, anything that stood out to you, which you'd like to mention? Well, the whole process of Tulip Queen pageant, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be uh, a necessary component of Tulip Time Festival because it, it doesn't seem to be uh, that closely related to the Dutch heritage or to the community. It seems to be something that somebody at some point during the Tulip Time Festival said, oh, we can add this to the lineup of things to do. It wasn't always part of the festival, and I don't know that it had to be added to the Tulip Time Festival uh, later on. I think that Tulip Time Festival would go, go on smoothly without a Tulip Queen pageant. Uh, and maybe the position of Tulip Queen in the royal court isn't, uh, isn't as significant as the labor to promote Tulip Queen uh, uh, to promote the Tulip Time Festival as a queen or a royal attendant is probably more important to the community and more important to the uh, steering team than awarding these girls queen or royal attendant. Right, because as right. I said, they go across the state promoting, uh, promoting Tulip Time Festival. And uh, as representatives of Tulip Time, they get in front of larger audiences who then watch it and say, ooh, I would really like to go see that. When is it? Oh, that's great. I saw it on the television. And I just had to be there. Right, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think on a first glance, right, like when you, you know, like first heard about it, um, what is it about the festival that hooked you and that made you like personally interested in, you know, knowing more and studying about it? It's in my backyard, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I started by, just going to it and experiencing it. But just going to a festival makes a person a tourist. Tourism is different than culture. Culture is being immersed in it and getting to know the roots of the event, the roots of the activities that are taking place, the heritage that is associated with it. This is a heritage cultural event. It is, it is a festival that is associated with the Dutch culture it's more meaningful to the people who began it and the people of this community than it is to the tourists who just come here to experience it and then go home and say, I had a really good time doing this. So as a cultural sociologist, I think what is extremely important to me is getting to know the deep culture associated with festivals. Right now I'm studying, uh, right now I'm studying Floatzilla, which is a, kayaking and canoeing event that takes place across the Mississippi River um, going from Iowa to the Illinois side and it's uh, it's a uh, an event that celebrates the Mississippi River and celebrates nature that exists in this area that uh, oftentimes is not uh, used or captured by the people of that area. Uh, I think that it's important to get to know the meaning of these events, the meaning of these festivals, 
to uh, uh, to to really understand to really understand human nature as being uh, as social beings. Rituals are an extremely important part of our lives. We like to uh, we are fascinated with identities, and part of identities is belonging and cohesion and solidarity with other people. So I, I, you know, like you mentioned earlier, sociology is something that's important to you. But uh, once you earned your undergraduate degree, you started to miss sociology. Well, why? Well, it was a lost identity. You didn't have sociology professors around you. Many of the students you went to class with went their own way. So you felt uh, maybe isolated and indifferent, wondering how you could come back to sociology and talk to people like me about the thing that you passionately love, which uh, reinstills that identity in you because you get to talk about it with other knowledgeable people. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you know, you've just, uh, you know, like put into words a lot of the things that I've been feeling for so long. So it's extremely satisfying to hear that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that, uh, that like pretty much calls it a wrap from my end. You know, I've, I've covered all that I've had to say. Do you have any final closing comments as to, you know, how you think you could, you know, maybe take like the research forward or what the implications might be or just anything um, along these lines? Yeah, so um, more recently, what I've been doing with the uh, research uh, beyond the publication of the Queen and Her Royal Court is looking at other festivals. And um, now I'm working on some more public work like uh, publishing in magazines that meets a more general audience. And I'm also looking at a book, either writing about one festival or a collection of different festivals that I have studied and really just uh, further promoting festival studies in the United States. I've uh, read a lot of material that's uh, come from European countries, but not a lot of local work. So just further promoting cultural sociology, particularly the study of festival and seeing it as, a, as a, an important field to study um, for graduate students and uh, for scholars who are currently looking for their next big thing to research. Uh, but then also, um, I, I think one last closing comment is studying this in a way that it's collaborative. So if there's anybody who's looking for uh, looking for a, a partner, somebody who they can collaborate with and work with on their studies, uh, yeah, I'm available. Definitely, right. All right, then I think that uh, that calls it a wrap. So thank you so much, uh, Michael, for taking out the time today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you and I hope to have the episode up soon. Yeah. Excellent. Thank Bye. you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do consider subscribing and sharing it along. Apart from Anchor, which is our main hosting platform, you can catch us on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Republic, and Spotify. If you're on Twitter, then be sure to follow the handle ResearchDown for further updates or just to get in touch.